Hello and welcome to the gaping chasm of time between parts 8 and 9 of Twin Peaks The Return. I'm Andy Hazel and for this week's episode I thought I'd share an interview I did with Mark Frost, the co-writer of Twin Peaks The Return and the co-creator of the original series. This interview was recorded before the new season began, so he's not discussing events or characters, but there is a lot of talk about its creation and about the book that's gradually becoming more and more key to the series, The Secret History of Twin Peaks. The book seemed like Frost's chance to explore the world he created with David Lynch, unencumbered by the need to represent it visually. The series seemed more Lynch's creative expression, using actors and crew that he chose as director. Mark is a writer, Lynch a painter, and as Lynch said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, I haven't read it. It's his history of Twin Peaks. But 44% of our way into the new season, the book seems to be playing a bigger part than some were expecting. Since part 8 confounded a lot of us with its trips back to 1945 and 1956, now seems like a good time to hear Mark's thoughts about how the past figures into Twin Peaks. Apologies for the low audio quality. Mark was on his mobile phone walking around his estate at Ojai, California. You'll hear occasional interruptions from his dog, some very mellifluous wind chimes, and if anyone wants to do an analysis on the melodic intervals, please be my guest. And what sounds like him hoeing into some breakfast bars, but I'm not really sure what some of those background noises are. Anyway, I began by asking him about how much of the secret history of Twin Peaks he had in mind when he was working on the original series. Um, I didn't really start thinking about a book like this until toward the end of season two, and I... uh, you know, we had had some success doing the, the books that we published back then with the the Secret Diary of Laura Palmer, obviously, and the, the autobiography of uh, Dale Cooper, um, and to a lesser extent, the, the Access Guide to Twin Peaks, which was kind of a lot of fun to put together. And it was, it was at that point that I, you know, I was just beginning my own career as a novelist, and I'd, I had thought briefly about uh, doing a book about the history of the region and how the town came to be, a, a way to kind of deepen the roots of the mythology of the show. Mm. And so I obviously didn't get to it back then. Fate had other things in mind, including the, you know, the unexpected cancellation of the show. But in the back of my mind, I always had this notion that it would be fun to revisit this idea. So when we finished writing season three and I started to think about well, now I could write the book that I had always been thinking about. This was this is where my thoughts ended up uh, going, and that's how the book kind of developed. Right. Okay. Um. So, how how were you feeling in 1991 when the series was cancelled? Did it feel like that was the end of Twin Peaks forever? I felt at the time. I mean, there was there was so little precedent for the notion of TV shows being anything other than kind of disposable artifacts of, of their time and place, it would have been kind of crazy to imagine, okay, 25 years from now, uh, we're going to live in a world where the show is more popular than ever, and, and they're gonna, we're going to be able to come back and pick up the story at that point and, and go forward. I, I mean, I, I might have been uh, subject to psychiatric review if I started <laughs> talking like that back then. Um, so uh, it wasn't until... You know, we started talking about bringing it back, which was about four years ago, that any of this seemed possible. And at just about that time, it, you know, with between the DVD releases and, and its appearance then in, uh, in streaming uh, on Netflix and other, uh, other places, that the momentum picked back up in a way that was really palpable. Uh, and that was part of what, you know, prompted uh, our 
our feeling that we could we could revive this and take it to someplace new that would please the fans and also give us a chance to you know tie up some unfinished business. Mm, okay. So did you do you um, think at the time that the details and the storylines that were truncated were these things that you had already mapped out in a lot of detail or were they more things that you thought oh we'll get to that if we you know when we get to season three? Yeah, it was more theoretical. I mean, when you're you're working sixteen hours a day to sort of get the shows in, that are immediately in front of you finished, because uh, at that point when you're trying to do twenty two hours a year, television is a fairly brutal exercise. Mm. So there was there was no time to really be thinking. I mean, we were thinking in very general terms about where the show might go, and some of those things um, have found their way into you know, the, the more modern incarnation. But there was no, there was very little specificity. There was just no time. And once, you know, once they said it's over, then that seemed to be the way it was going to go. Right. Um, were you confident that once you and David were in, in lockstep about season three, uh, that every, everything else would come together? Yeah, I mean, we obviously, we had to feel right about where we wanted to take it. And, uh, find the right home for it and, and do all those things before we anybody could push the button on it. it. It needed to have a reason for being and it needed to be it needed to justify um, going back. There had to be enough to make sense for it as something above and beyond just an exercise in nostalgia or, mm, or yeah. you know candidly a, you know a, a sort of cynical cashing in. That wasn't we weren't trying to do um you know, uh, Twin Peaks, a very special Christmas edition, or <laughs> yeah. um, Return to Gilligan Island. It wasn't. Mm. Uh, we, we we couldn't. It, it couldn't be like that. And do you feel much pressure now that the quality of television is so much greater? Or there's much more money being put into there. It's much more cinematic now, largely because of the pioneering work of Twin Peaks. I would argue. Um, do you feel that Twin Peaks is is going to measure up to more now? Well, I think more will be probably expected of it in a way, but my feeling about it is that having done it once, I, I didn't think it would be like climbing Mount Everest to do it again. Mm. Um, and in fact, uh, to be walking into a situation where we had the, the luxuries of, of time and money and, and uh, creative control... Um, that are, you know, we would we were willing to take our chances. It's like the old Boy Scout motto, be sure you're right, then go ahead. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. We always had be prepared. That was ours. Anyway, maybe it's different in, this, in Australia. Yeah, that too. That too. <laughs> um, maybe, it was, uh, maybe it was somebody else. But, <laughs> um, that, sounds, uh, uh, that, was, that was a phrase that somehow worked its way into my mind at an early age. Okay, cool. Um, did it take very long to get the key personnel back on board that you wanted? Uh, no. Okay. No, I mean, we, we, uh, we had to approach everybody on a case-by-case basis, but um, uh, no, we felt, we felt people would want to come back and, and go on the ride. Mm. Um, it was, it was a, a wonderful experience for all of us to get back together and, and share this, you know, this place and this creative endeavor again. Yeah. Because um, something I noticed and that you mentioned earlier was that you were surprised how Twin Peaks is now more popular than ever. But it seems like with every iteration of technology, Twin Peaks has kind of ridden that wave to a bigger and bigger audience. So I'm interested as to how you now think the internet has changed the creation and the, the dispersion of season three. 
Well, I mean, you have to ultimately think about the internet as a distribution system. You know, that's that's effectively how it functioned for this show and for so many others. The dissemination of finished material is nowhere near as dependent on larger cultural intermediaries like television networks anymore. We've seen so many examples of people making uh, small movies with very limited money that simply by virtue of being accessible on YouTube or whatever platform they're using can become a cultural phenomenon pretty quickly. So I think it's actually lowered the bar to to entry, just in terms of the, the amount of gatekeeping that goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a real boon for people now who are younger and starting out their creative lives to have access to uh, that kind of distribution without having to pass through all those uh, those other hurdles that uh, traditionally we've had to do. Okay. So when you um, started out with the book, it seemed like it began with a different uh, title. Is, is that right, The Secret Lives of Twin Peaks was going to be? That was just a preliminary title, and then I, you know, I'm been thinking about it, I thought it's, it's, it, it is that, but it's also more in a larger context. History sort of includes the idea of lives, but it, it removes the, the, the pure focus on, say, updating you on what happened to people. It's, it's now about the region itself and that includes all the people okay. that isn't limited exclusively to, to them so that was the, it was just a I thought a, a better semantic way of accurately saying what the book was about okay but so did the purpose of the book change from when you began working on it no no it was it was always going to be there was a, a very early press release that misstated it as being somehow the, the story of what happened in the 25 years between the, the old and the new. And that's, that's obviously a big part of what's proprietary about the new season. So that clearly was not going to be the case with the book. Uh, you know, you, you can't use the book to give away all the, the stuff you're about to say in the series. Yeah. So in a little, in a, in a, in a, in a small way, because that was a misapprehension at the beginning, I've been battling a little bit against that is a preconception of what the book was going to be, when in fact that was never the intention. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that the mysteries that you seem drawn to in the book and that get pulled into the Twin Peaks universe seem to be a lot about the protection of power and knowledge. And I'm interested as to what it is about these mysteries that um, have appealed to you so much. Uh, well, I think it's one of the central tensions in modern American life, that there is this idea of mystery and a sense of wonder about the the meaning of life, which is obviously open and available to everybody. And to contrast that with what often seems to be the behavior of human institutions and government, which is to withhold and protect what they believe to be secrets about power, it's wide dissemination or understanding that they're trying to keep from people for some from some reason. And it, that's always seemed to me to be one of the biggest tensions in any free society. But one of the things that's most corrosive to uh, sort of social evolution. I mean, that's, maybe that's the result of me growing up in the Richard Nixon era, but mm-hmm. uh, that wasn't exactly a shining example of how to behave and an irresponsible use of power. So I've always been sensitive to how do we encourage openness and honesty and forward movement with this kind of backwards tendency that we have in people to hoard and withhold 
power from from other people, which you might call the you know the zero sum attitude of life. That there's only so much to go around, and obviously it can't be shared with people. It has to be kept from them. So I think that's a that's a central theme of the book, and it's a central worry that we have certainly in modern society, and, and I think the, the last couple of weeks in America kind of bear that out. I'm still, I'm still kind of interested in, in covering that period between you know, the end of the book and the, the start of the new show. So, I was wondering if this was another, another coincidence, was that it was, there was talk of it coming out after the show, which would be around October, which is also when the JFK Records Act is due to be releasing documents around that, the assassination. Oh, that's right. I had... You, you just connected a dot, the two dots that I hadn't actually connected before. So it's going to be up to whoever's president to decide whether they can keep it hidden for longer if they choose to. But at the moment, I think it has to be released before October 2017. I'll be very interested to see those when they appear. Do you think something like that would play into a future book? We'll see. I mean, I don't want to obviously do you know my version of the Warren report, but um, if there's ways in which they intertwine, I'll certainly look to incorporate that into whatever the next volume is okay yeah, something that um, I really took away from the book uh, and that I think ties into a lot of what you were just talking about then is the concept of an alternative reality the, you know, something that came through in the recent um, geopolitical events the rise of news sites reporting in completely invented stories that are believed that therefore yeah. create their own new reality um, Elon Musk is funding research that's trying to determine whether we're living in a constructed universe and then Twin Peaks, right. kind of, and then there seems to be a lot of allusions to this potential in in the book. Yeah, I think all these things are are interrelated. The mm. the idea that I felt like I grew up in a world where facts, scientifically established and agreed upon facts, were not fungible. You could rest rest on them and depend on them. Mm. How do you go? How do you move forward as a society with when you can't even agree on the most fundamental things, like the temperature of the world is going up? You know. How do we function if we can't even agree on that? There's such a stark divide between what seems to be the case and what a certain number of people are, are choosing to believe instead. Because um, I asked you on Twitter what the ballot box breakdown of the Twin Peaks High School was, and you told me that um, every fictional American town votes for Eisenhower. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, that was just sort of a safe answer. Small towns in general are more oriented toward the status quo than they are the cutting edge. That, that's n- nothing is universally true, I guess, but uh, and certainly the, the percentage of towns that you've seen depicted small towns in the past have tended to line up with, with what we think of as traditional values. Yeah. And those are inevitably kind of conservative and stable and Eisenhower-like. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, wh- when you take a phrase like make America great again, to which era of the American experience are you talking about? You know, at, at which point? Would you say that Twin Peaks in the late 80s is a great place, is like an example of great, great America? Well, I guess it was, it was in some way a place that people recognized as somehow truthful. And that was a big part of its appeal, that it wasn't just, it wasn't leave it to beaver, you know, it wasn't a placid, get along, go along, everything's hunky-dory town like we'd often seen in, in television. It was... It was much more complex. And in, in my experience, it was much more like the real places that I visited. We're very often strange and troubled creatures. And people can give the appearance of seeming to, to be products of that environment, but there's very often something very dark and, and 
dangerous stirring underneath, and it erupts at various times in various places. So we wanted to get a fuller portrait of a town and what people are actually like when you dig down below the surface. And so, because you talked about how um, when you were making the show, you felt that the story could go deeper and wider, and I feel like the book is your bid to to do that. I'm still intrigued as to why why you selected certain theories and certain mysteries to pull in via Dougie Milford's adventures and exploits before the show. Because there there were so many from which you could have chosen, and... I, I suppose that some of them must have been appealing and intriguing to you and others either frustrating or didn't quite fit. Yeah, and that's kind of an intuitive process, you know. I, I can't tell you exactly why I picked this or that or the other thing, but I, I guess I was looking for something. If we consider for a second who Dougie is and was, he was a man with military training who was asked from a, a logical, rational perspective to confront phenomenon that appeared to defy both logic and rationality and to investigate it for potential threat to human existence and that led him down a path that a lot of people have taken to if you've got this kind of grounding and rationality and scientific explanation for things what happens when you come up against something that defies that explanation so the, the sequencing of things that he encounters are all designed to challenge that fundamental assumption that, well, if we just keep digging and try harder and apply all of our logic and rationality, we'll get to the bottom of it. And uh, so far, um, as far as I can tell, in all of human existence, no one's completely gotten to the bottom mm, of it yet. Yeah. And I thought Dougie's journey was uh, a great way to analyze and, and contend with that. The thing that probably led me into this when I was a kid was being 10 years old when JFK was shot and, and watching this explosion in, in the world I was growing up in that challenged so many of our basic assumptions about how life was supposed to be and what was supposed to happen. And then I think... Uh, the next thing that pulled me in, I remember in high school, I was a huge Beatles fan, and the the, the Paul is dead rumor kind of spread oh, yeah. around the world. It was yeah. pre-internet, obviously, but it went, you could say it literally went viral in a way. And I, I can remember combing over all the album covers, you know, yeah. spending a number of days with, with my closest friend on Sgt. Pepper, and, and feeling like, okay, we figured it out, you know, they're he is dead. You, you have to call this number that if you flip the album around, the, the flowers, the Beatles actually spell a phone number. We actually called the phone number. You know, we're, we were replaying the, uh, you could replay the music by circling it back yeah, on the yeah, turntable yeah. and you could, all that stuff. So I got very wrapped up in that. And it was during that period that all these wild rumors about JFK were swirling. So it, it seemed to be part of the air that we were breathing. And then, you know, Nixon was with his own pathologies uh, and his own need for secrecy and, and with, withholding power uh, added to that. And then you ended up with Watergate and yeah. all those conspiracies. So, you know, America took a left turn and tumbled down a rabbit hole. And I felt like I'd been in the front seat of the roller coaster from the beginning, just watching this happen. So, yeah, the book was kind of my way of trying to contend with all those strange things that we were being asked to consider and uh, and to see where to see where it came out i was really interested with 
following that that journey for uh, for Dougie in particular. I think one of the, th- the signal things about the show, and as I've gotten all the feedback from fans over the years, and particularly in this last tour, is that they like being actively engaged. They they don't want to just sit back and passively be told what to think or feel. Mm. They want they want their minds to be um, pressed into service with engaging these ideas. So I wanted the book to to carry on that that kind of tradition. So are people finding mysteries, finding clues and solutions you didn't even put in the book? Like cause there's some there's, people have gone down some pretty deep rabbit holes with some of these um, photos and pages and clues well, and dates. Well, what I've always said about the series, and I think it applies to the book as well, uh, that if somebody sees something there, it doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, even if I didn't intend it. If that was not the intention, uh, if it sparked the idea, then I, I don't want to get in the way of that. I don't want to. T- I don't want to take too much credit either way. I just I I love the idea that the work prompts that kind of response, and I think uh, maybe leads people to you know a deeper examination of issues that go way beyond the book. So I mm. I'm certainly not going to complain if that happens, and I'm, I don't want to do anything to discourage it or or even. Uh, try to direct it. I think it's. I think it's all to the good. Even right from the very beginning, Twin Peaks always seemed like a creation that allowed space for the viewer to be able to respond. And the fact that season three right. is coming out one episode at a time seems like another gift for people to be able to have a you know a pause, but and break it down and analyze it and discuss and invest in positive theories. So, kind of yes. like, um, do other TV shows and books frustrate you because they are much more hermetic? And they don't allow that sort of space. Um, to the extent that they they do, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm more drawn to things that are, are more open ended. Uh, one of my one of my favorite thoughts or passages, almost a motto for me, was the thinker and philosopher J. Krishnamurti uh, said that truth is a pathless land, and um, I've always adhered to that. I I I felt that nobody has nobody's cornered the market on it. Yeah. That, and everybody's got to decide these big questions for themselves. I think that's where we're, if we're going to survive as a species, that's certainly where we're headed, and it's probably going to depend on people. Um, I mean, one hopes they're going to arrive at many of the same conclusions that will enable mankind, humankind, to survive. I think by asking these kind of questions in an open-ended way, if it leads to people asking the right questions, uh, hopefully it'll give us a good outcome. Um, so to that end, do you think that rather than exploring the pathless land of truth, that people are getting hung up on incidental details? Is that stuff frustrating to you? I, I mean, nothing about it upsets me. It's uh, Everybody's entitled to their own response. I think when it comes to the idea that a fictional world is somehow supposed to slavishly adhere to a set of facts that are fictional to begin with it's it's kind of an absurd construct and remember too that the 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 choice for the form of the book was not accidental that it the idea was that it was all found documents yes mm. and if you've ever spent and i i, I, I take it you have <clears throat> researching or exploring or going through old records or newspaper accounts uh, the past is lathered with inaccuracies and mistakes, and mm. um, so there were there were occasional times where I wanted there to be a, a typo, or I wanted there to be something that didn't uh, ring completely true, because that seems to be cl- 
closer to reality. Reality yeah. is not altogether dependable mm. for what we think of as reality. There's constantly something that, that seems to counter or contradict this notion that everything can be nailed down. Um, that would be my response to people who see, seem to think that any internal contradiction in a, in a set of documents somehow invalidates the, the process. And what I would say is maybe you need to look at more actual documents. That, yeah. My experience has always been uh, that's, that's not a roadmap. It's, it's simply a point of view. And like it comes back to you have to figure out the truth for yourself. Hopefully there's enough scientific fact that you can base it on to give it a, some kind of relationship to reality. It does seem like um, there's millions of versions of Twin Peaks going around. Basically, there's pe so many people right. have invested them, you know, parts of themselves and their own stories into it. Well, in a way, it's almost like this idea that there's an infinite number of universes that are existing simultaneously. You know, and and what that may really point to is the fact that every single person alive is constantly perceiving and compiling and and rating their own experience as true to themselves. So, yeah. whether it's an objective fact or not that there's all these multiple universes, it's certainly true that given that there's, what, 7 billion people mm -hmm. walking around at any particular time, there are 7 billion versions of reality. So, that, yeah, that was what I was getting interested about when I was mentioning the alternative realities earlier and these ways that now you seem to have built in various ways to access different realities whether it's like Jacoby right. with his ayahuasca or the Jack Parsons and that sort of thing. And in a way, the reality is kind of caught up to what you were already concerned with. It seems to be much more um, mainstream, I suppose, now. Well, I mean, I think we have to go back to uh, really the guy who invented the, the modern or the human. And, and when Shakespeare said there's more on heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy, you know, take it mm. seriously. One thing that you've probably noticed is that these people are attracted to the show for a lot of different reasons. But the way that people, so many people, are drawn to Laura's story, and there seems to, and even though you know, there's no discussion of you know, the darker sides of personalities or human or um, personal experiences, it seems to be this um, basically um, on, a well-honored monologue of of abuse and uh, and hor horrific experiences, but also a, you know a beautiful healing journey that you've. Um, that you and, and David have constructed. Do you think there's th th that's part of the reason that that people might have been drawn to the show and so passionately? Yeah, yeah. There, were, there was definitely a connective thread there for people. The, this, I, I mean, if if there was a show that was talking about the horrific reality of what um, what kind of disasters can lurk inside a, uh, a situation that involved that kind of intra-family abuse. I can't think of another show that, was, that did it in such a way, certainly not up until then. It's been fodder for some of the, the great drama we've had down through the ages. What is, what is Hamlet but a story about an abusive family? Mm. Um, if, it, if it provided people some comfort or a, sense, or a way of finding a sense of community with people who had either had similar or parallel experiences, I, I think that's a Mm. Again, that's a wonderful outcome, and it's something that, that you, you would only hope for. If you can figure out a way to to express some a portion of the truth or something that feels true, then it's gonna it's gonna resonate with people to bring their own truth to it. And the and the dialogue that results is probably more important than the work itself, because uh, what else is creative work? What, what higher purpose could creative work have? I mean, obviously, there's there's a desire to entertain and engage and 
that's a noble pursuit too. But if it if it leads you into looking at stuff like this and it gives you the catharsis that the Greeks felt were, was the central experience of dramatic expression, and it, and if we think about think about some of those Greek plays and you know the violence of family relationships was at the heart of many of them. you're kind of then walking on ground that has been the path that so many other forms of storytelling have have chosen you're honored to think you know you might be in their footsteps finally can i ask what what your involvement in season three the production of season three was do were you on set while while it was being made i was on set probably 40 percent of the time uh because i was writing the book currently so that was my primary objective at that point i mean uh, david was doing a brilliant job with a wonderful production team so I, I was I was around more when we were up in Washington just because I wanted to share that experience with the cast and crew and that had a whole other component to it but I really had to in the, in the second half of last year had to really focus on the book yeah um, okay um, so when you um, first visited North Bend, you said it was like seeing Twin Peaks through a prism because so many of the things you discussed or you'd already created were actually there and present in the real world. Um, were there moments of discovery and surprise like that during the production of season three too? Um, yeah, I can't elaborate on that because <laughs> I'm, I'm bound not to talk about it, but I'll answer that just by saying yes. Okay, great. <laughs> um, and are you feeling much pressure for um, for it to be a success or to... Do, do you feel like there are a lot of expectations being carried around at the moment? Uh, you know, I never try to focus on that. I mean, the, the pressure is when you're making the show. Um, it's it's or writing the show or creating it. That, it's the pressure to do the best that you can do. Mm. And how people are going to respond to it is completely out of one's control. Yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. I don't I, I don't really worry about that because I can't I can't really affect it. I, it's it's it is what it is, and it's going to be what it's going to be. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. Great. It was a pleasure speaking with you as well, and um, uh, good luck on everything down the road. Thank you very much for making it to the end of my interview with Mark Frost. Haley and I will be back to discuss Part 9 next week, along with our very special guest, author and essayist Stephanie Lai. Until then, please rate and review us on iTunes and follow us on social media at TP Season 3. Thank you very much. I mean, I would classify myself as a Jungian. <laughs>